Good morning. Everybody good? Okay. You guys ready to learn something? All right. So yesterday we had uh, playoffs for Palisade High School, and four or five other coaches and I have been teaching these kids the game of baseball for the last four or five years since I've been there, five years since I've been there. And about three years ago, we were with a gentleman named Ron Fonte. Ron's a Christian man. Uh, he's a hitting coach. And uh, we were hitting one day in his cage over by Chick-fil-A, over by that auto parts store. And I was teaching the kids about bunting. And we'd get in there and at the plate, and I'd say, okay, when you... When you you're getting ready to bunt, I want you to, you get a bunt sign, I just want you to scoot up in the box a little bit because as you can imagine, when you scoot up in the box, the field actually gets bigger. The diamond gets a little bit bigger. It's just simple math, right? Scoot up in the box a little bit, get in on the plate a little bit, and then when the pitcher separates his hands, I want you to drop your back, your back foot, okay? Drop your back foot, open up your front foot, and get down like this. So you've got a foot, a foot, and then you get down. So Ron said to me, Nate, I got a question for you. Now, at the time, I had been in baseball about 36 years, because it was a couple years ago. And I've been taught how to bunt from my dad when I was four. And I think bunting is the most essential part of the offensive game. You need to figure it out. If, you can't be a, if you're not a good bunter, you're not going to be a good hitter. So he says, why do you teach that way? And I said, well, it's just the right way to do it. It's the way I've always taught. And it works. He says, well, why don't you just, if you get the bunt sign, have him scoot up in the box a little bit, and when the pitcher separates his hand, just do this. And you notice my feet didn't move. Just, just bend your knees like you're hitting and get your bat head out there and get your head out there and your feet don't move. You take away extra movements of your body when all you're doing is just try to keep it nice and simple and just turn your hips, get your hands out front, and get your bat head out, and your bat head's got to be above your handle. So that's how you bunt. And I went, Ron, I've been doing this for 36 years, and I will never teach bunting the way I used to teach it. I'm changing my entire approach on how I teach bunting because I learned a better way. I learned a more efficient way. So now when the kids come to the program, I say, well, we're going to learn how to bunt. And I say, you know how to bunt? And they're like, yeah, we know how to bunt. I say, okay, get up there. And they bunt and they go, I'm like, no, you can't bunt like that. But okay. I'm like, what happens if he throws a fastball in your hands? You're going to break your knuckles. And so we go through this whole process and teaching you how to bunt the basics. Now, I bring that up because I want to review last week's message. Last week, we pre or I preached on that idea of doubting God, um, fear, uh, worry, and that whole concept where the man says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And I used the passage in Matthew chapter 11 and also found in Luke 7, but in Matthew 11, we have this passage where John the Baptist is in prison, and he heard about what Christ was doing, and he sent some of his disciples, John's disciples, to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And then Jesus replied, go back and tell John what we saw. And so the, the idea behind the message was that John was doubting, and oftentimes we doubt as believers, we doubt as Christians, and we need to go back to God and get some questions answered and have more faith and ask God to help us with our unbelief. And after the message, I was sitting right back there uh, through the corridor there, and our elder, Steve, comes up and he gently placed his hand on my shoulder, and he says, you know, 
I've always had a different understanding on that verse. And he began to explain to me his understanding of that verse. And I listened and I thought, well, maybe I learned, need to learn how to bunt again. Maybe I learned how, learn how to teach this. So I went back this week, this last week, and I studied this verse in, in Matthew and Luke, and it forced me to look at the different understandings of why would John send his disciples to go ask Jesus this question. And there's several interpretations and several belief systems as to why, commentaries and such, as to why John would ask these questions. The first one is obviously that John had doubts. John, John it had been a while, that, but he was doubting that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom he baptized in the Jordan River, uh, was the Messiah. It may have stemmed from the fact that John was in prison, and he was wondering, okay, if this was the Messiah, why wouldn't he save me from this? Why wouldn't he get me out of this? Is he if it's the Son of God? Uh, his doubts may have stemmed from the fact that many claimed in those days to be the Christ. And we see that in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John go up there, and they say, we must obey God rather than men, when the, or the Sanhedrin said, don't teach in the name of Jesus any longer. And they go before the Sanhedrin and they have this big to-do and the, the Pharisees get all upset and the Sanhedrin gets upset and they said, leave the room. And Gamaliel says, hey guys, there's been a couple of guys that have come around claiming to be somebody and it always failed. So just hang tight. Let's not do anything. Let's not get an uprising again. Let's see what happens. If it fails, we'll know they're just another a fraud. If it doesn't fail, we're going to find ourselves fighting against God. And so Gamaliel, in his wisdom, says, just, just hang tight a little bit. So that, that's maybe why he doubted a little bit, is that there were many frauds in those day and ages. He wanted to make sure that's from the doubt perspective. Some believe that, that John sent his disciples to Jesus to test him and to ask him um, to strengthen the faith of the disciples. You know, John says that I must decrease and he must increase. John's ministry was to lead people to Jesus. We see that in, in John's entire life. He says, I must, you know, his sandals, I'm not worthy to untie. And so he's telling his disciples, they say, hey, John, I got a question, man. I know you're in bars, and I can just picture the disciples calling up to where the prison was, you know, because it wasn't like we have in Mesa County here where you've got this large gate. You've probably got these walls, you know, that were made, and there's these holes in these walls, and just high enough where you could reach up. And they would sneak in and say, John, there's this guy named Jesus. I think he's your cousin, right? He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the Son of God. I mean, what, what are we going to do? And John's like handing the baton, saying, hey, why don't you go ask him if he's the one that was to come? Or should they expect another? And so some believe, people believe that they did it, to, John said that to strengthen his disciples. And then a third reason that I've read about was John wanted to know, since he had been in prison, there was obviously no internet, there was no Instagram, there was no YouTube. He hadn't seen him for a long time. He hadn't heard of him for a while. And he's hearing about all this stuff that this Jesus is doing, the same Jesus that he baptized. And he said, hey, uh, are you, the, are you the, the same one? Are you the same one? I just want to make sure that there's not an imposter. Are you the same Jesus from Nazareth, the cousin that I know, and I testify and I see that this is the Son of God? So there's all these different beliefs and these interpretations and understandings of what John meant when he asked the question, but I think the most important aspect of that part of the message, or this part of the message, is this. If you accept my words, 
and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and you call out for insight, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I think that's the point of having two or three or four different understandings out there in a conversation that we're having after church one day to say, hey, Nate, I heard you say this. Here's been my understanding. What say you? Is there, a de is there another understanding? Is there a deeper knowledge of here? And I believe that if we search for it as for silver, silver or search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will find the knowledge of God. And oftentimes... We're like, I don't really, I don't want to do this. My body knows this. I, wanna, I don't want to do this, even though it may be more accurate, simple, and better. I'm going to stick with how I bunt. And I see kids constantly do that in high school still. They still do it the way they want. They drop their bat head. It happened yesterday. I have to confess, I kicked a chair in the dugout. I've apologized for it because he failed to execute, which cost us a run. I'm not proud of that. I'm truly confessing. I lost. I kicked a chair. I felt like Bobby Knight for a second, and I had to apologize. Coach, guy, I'm really sorry. I just let the moment get caught up, and the chair's fine. You know, everything's good. We're going to win this game. It's okay. But I'm willing to learn to bunt a better way. At our men's study, we have been having, uh, I should say, we've been attempting to have a study on these words of Jesus that have, that have been in my mind for 20 years. And it's uh, in, in chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is, is, is baptizing people. He came from the desert of Judea. He is preaching and teaching. He's saying, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. His clothes were made of camels there, interestingly enough, like Elijah. Leather belt around his waist. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and they confessed their sins to him, and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to him where he was baptizing, and he said, you brood of vipers, um, produce fruit in keeping from repentance. And then a, a little bit while later, Jesus uh, comes from Galilee, to the Jordan, and my studies have said, you know, have said it was either 70 plus miles, I can't mean by writing anymore, uh, 70 or 30 or 20 plus miles, it was quite a bit of ways from Galilee to the Jordan River where John was baptizing. And he came, Jesus came to be baptized by John. And these words that I'm about to read here are the words that we, about three weeks ago, said, let's study out this, what this means. And it says, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Those were the words of Jesus. Let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. The Spirit of God descended like him on a dove, like a dove enlightening on him. And a voice from heaven spoke, This is my Son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. The words we, we, we were studying and beginning to look at was, It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And that study of righteousness is what we had intended to study. 
But what happened was it opened up a really large can of worms. Okay? And pretty soon we're talking about baptism. And we're talking about what is what Hebrews 6 says is an elementary teaching. And we have discussed as a group, as a men's group, um, the necessity, the mode, uh, the meaning of this concept of baptism. And the conversations, I think, have been stimulating. The questions have been that have been asked have been stimulating. They've challenged me personally. It's forced me to go back into the Word, which we're going to talk a little bit about today too. Um, and just an idea of what's, what has been said is some people have stated that in, in the group, in our men's Bible study, that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It's something you do as an outward sign of an inward change, of an inward faith, something that's already taken place. Uh, some have stated that without baptism there is no salvation. Uh, that is at baptism that you receive forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some have stated that baptism doesn't mean immersion at all. It rather means, uh, it means it's a concept of teaching that the word is following the Torah. Did I say that right, men that are in the study? Yeah, that, that, that it means it's a kind of following the Torah is what the word means. Um, others have said uh, baptism, which are found in a few key verses, doesn't mean immersion, but it means immersion in water, but rather it means following uh, our heart as God leads. Did I summarize somewhat of what has been t discussed in the Bible study? Efren, you've been there. Steve, Trace, would that be kind of accurate? I'm trying to, Dennis, I'm trying to get everybody kind of filled in to what we were, we've been talking about. And as you can imagine, on a topic as, as hot as the subject of baptism, it can lead to chasms. It can lead to divisiveness in the church. And I've confess to you, I've been a part of those conversations that you could begin to see people separating into separate camps and getting really passionate and heated, and pretty soon there's a lot of finger pointing and anger and things like that. And I thank God for the fact that we have a group of men in our church body that love the Lord enough and love each other enough that I don't see chasms happening. I don't see divisiveness happening. What I see is people genuinely seeking and, and filling their mind with what does the word of God say because I desire to know what the king of kings says. I, I honestly believe that. If I didn't believe that in my heart, I'd say, you know what? I think we have a wolf alarm. You know, I don't believe that. I think within this room, within this church body, the men that are going there are genuinely seeking truth and wants to know what the word of God says and sometimes it takes 35 years sometimes it takes 70 years sometimes it takes one study to go oh okay I understand this I get this but this morning my open prayer is that we're much like the uh, the apostle or the disciple in the book of Acts on a couple of different levels okay don't don't misread what I'm saying here in Acts chapter 18 uh, we see this where Paul was, was in Corinth for some time and then he, he went and he left and, and he went to Syria and, and he met some people in Syria and then he spent some time in Antioch and, um, and Paul set out from there, from Antioch and he traveled to a place uh, throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia and, and during this time of Paul's journey in his ministry, it says there was this, a, a, a Jew and this Jew's name was Apollos. And Apollos was a native of Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. Okay. Now, if you look a little bit later, there's some cool things about the elders from Ephesus and the Ephesian elders. But in this passage, it says that, that Apollos came to Ephesus, and it says this about Apollos. Apollos was a learned man, 
He had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. Not just a little bit of knowledge. He had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. I'm okay being Apollos in this point right now. He has fervor for God. He taught about Jesus accurately. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. But then it says something about him. It says, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to Apollos the way of God more adequately. Okay? After that, he wanted to go to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. They didn't say, watch out for this guy. They said, hey, I'm going to encourage you to welcome this man. He had, they had been instructing him in a more accurate understanding, the way of God more adequately, because he knew only of the baptism of John. And so what I hear, and whatever they taught, it doesn't say. We can only infer certain things. So don't, I'm not going to say, this is what Priscilla and Aquila taught, because it doesn't say that. It just says they taught more accurately or adequately about God. He knew of the baptism of John. They taught him the way of, more, of God more adequately. So what I picture is, I picture Priscilla and Aquila saying, and Apollos going, That's what I picture Priscilla and Aquila teaching a more perfect way, a little bit better way. And with that, he goes on and he goes and, and, and he, he encourages others and he teaches others. And my goal, my goal this morning is that regardless of the subject in the Bible, whether we're talking about baptism or repentance or faith or our life, whatever it is, we go... Oh, okay, that, that makes sense. I understand that. I don't quite understand that, but I'm going to make sense of it. I'm going to do my best to understand what the Word of God says. Maybe it's possible that John's gone, look, I know that's Jesus. I baptized the guy. Trust me, you guys, I'm going to hand the baton off. You guys, his sandals, I'm not worthy to untie. I'm going to be dead in a little while. Go see Jesus. He is the one that I came to prepare the way for. That's, that's the mentality as a church body we have to have if you are going to consider yourself a follower of Jesus. I'm going to boldly say it. If you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I'm not saying you have to believe like I do. I'm saying if you want to be a follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you seek it as you would for silver and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, even if it goes against everything that I've always believed. I've always believed John doubted. Maybe I don't believe John doubted. Maybe I believe he's saying, here you go. Maybe I still do believe John doubted. I don't know, but I can tell you my salvation doesn't rest on me understanding that one verse in Luke 7. I can tell you that. But there is something in our hearts that God says, I want you to understand me more adequately, more accurately. That's what I want. God is wanting our hearts to say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean love your enemy? What do you mean pray for those who persecute you? What do you mean humble yourselves? What do you mean God opposes the proud? What do you mean by that, God? 
How can you change me inside here to be more of your disciple and more of your follower? How can you help me move to be more like you? Amen? I believe that's what God is calling us to do. So there's some of these beliefs, I'm going to be candid, that I heard, but I was like, huh, I hadn't heard that before. I hadn't heard before that, that, that baptizo means Torah following. I heard every other argument, I, I will tell you, I heard every other argument in my, in my studies in the past, but I've never heard before that it meant Torah following. So I had to go back and study that, and I'm like, well, maybe it does mean, I have to, maybe it does mean Torah following. Maybe that was the intent of, God, of God's word from the beginning. But to automatically say, oh, there's absolutely no way it means that, is saying, I know everything, and as soon as you get that, I said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. <laughs> and I want all the grace I can get because I need it. I need that grace. So, I did a study on this. And again, I went back through some old notes and I went through and it's interesting, the, the word or the form of the word baptism is used 112 times in the New Testament. And it's only found in the New Testament. It's 112 times in the New Testament, whether it's bat baptizeth, baptizest, baptizer, baptize, uh, baptizing, 112 times that word is used. And there's three, there's three main ways and three Greek words that it's used. It's bapto or baptizo. Uh, baptistes is a baptizer, like John the Baptistes is John the baptizer. That's used several times. But majority of the time, it's, it's baptizo, which is a derivative of the word bapto, and this is what the word means in the Greek. Understand, I don't mean to get all goofy on you, but the, the, the Bible, as it was written, it was spoken in Aramaic through Jesus and Hebrew, and, 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 and then it, and it was written, it was taken and translated into Greek, which is koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E, which is a dead language. Okay? It's very important when we read Scripture because we understand, well, that's just your interpretation, Therese. When it says that Jonah was cool, it doesn't mean Jonah was like hip, you know? It means that he was cool, he was chilly. Or, or maybe it meant he was hip, I don't know. But it depends on the word back then because being in the Koine Greek, it's a dead language. It doesn't exist anymore, it's dead. Meaning the words don't continue to progress over time. If it meant he was cool, 500 or 2,000 years ago, it means today that he's cool because it's a dead language. And so this being in a dead language, that word baptizo, a derivative of, of bapto, means, to, means literally to overwhelm, to cover wholly with fluid, to moisten, to stain as with a dye, to dip or ceremonial ablution. So the reason there's all these different definitions is because in the context of when it's written and who it's writing to and what it's saying, they're not going to say that uh, a piece of cloth, or for example, like a, a battleship or a submarine is one way that it's been put to me, is that a submarine was bapto, was, was baptizo, was immersed uh, in water, fully covered with fluid. The whole thing went down under. Or a piece of cloth, when you dye it, it is dyed, D-Y-E, and it was, it was covered fully or fully overwhelmed or dipped into the water or into the dye. That is what the word literally means. I don't care if you're a theologian or if you're an agnostic or 
though you're an atheist, if you are a, a Greek scholar or a Greek linguistic, you will look at this word and you can study and say, yes, that's what it means. If you study in different religions that practice different forms of immersion or forms of baptism, whether it's pouring or whether it's sprinkling or whether it's standing in the water and pouring, whatever it is, they will all 100%, 100% agree that the Greek word means to dip, to immerse, to die, to fully overwhelm. I've read the catechism. I under, not cover to cover, but I've studied this subject in the catechism. And if you look at it, the teaching of the pontiff is that that word means to dip, to immerse, to die. That is the teaching of the Catholic Church. They practice sprinkling, but the teaching in the catechism, my point being, the Greek word is to immerse. That's what it means, to dip, to die. Now, in the Old Testament, there's no word found for baptism in the Old Testament. There's the ideas of uh, the Jewish laws that have been passed out orally from generation to generation, and they, they, they talk about it for ritual washing, and there are six different places what they would recommend to do it. Sometimes it's stagnant water, which is, it, it's, it has efficacy, but not as good as running water. You know, if you have pure running water, it's, it's better than stagnant water in a pool. And if you go to Jerusalem, you go to Israel, and they unearth these things, you find these places called mikvahs. And they're pools where they would go through their ritual washing. I mean, it's, if you study the, the history in Jerusalem and Israel, it's fascinating because you go to these houses that would house up to 50 people and sojourners would come and they have to go through these ceremonial washings to be prepared and cleansed for Passover. And so you would go through these in, in this passage in Exodus chapter 30. I want to read real quick. Sorry if I'm talking fast, but I figure the faster I talk, the quicker I can get to Denver on Thursday and get ready for the state tournament, baby, <laughs> for the Bulldogs. I'm so excited about that. All right, so Liz, I know, I'm pretty goofy. In Exodus chapter 30, in verse 17, this is the basin for washing. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting at the alt and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they all shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. So we see this throughout the, the Old Testament as well. You have these washings, these purification rites that were for women at certain times of the year, as you can imagine. They were for the priests. Um, they were for the, the cleansing rites of being prepared for Passover. Um, if you touched a dead body, you went through these, these mikvahs. And this is an oral tradition and also written tradition of the priesthood as well that they would go in these basins and wash. Okay, that's just, that, that's not, that's a non-disputable discussion fact. I mean, that's just what was going on and what happened uh, in the Old Testament as well. Now, the Strong's lexicon for the Hebrew word that talks about washings is the word mikvah. And it's, it, it has a couple of different meanings, which I'm not even going to begin to go in the teaching of mikvah and how the physical and the spiritual connect, because it's a whole other two or three messages. But the word mikvah can mean something waited for, confidence, also a collection of water, a pond, or a caravan, or a drove, abiding, gathering together, hope, linen, yarn, plenty of water, pool. 
you've got all of these ver these words that mean or, or all of these definitions that come from this one word mikvah. Do you see why in Proverbs chapter 2 God says if you search for it as for hidden treasure then you will find the knowledge of God. When my kids were growing up little ones and Brenda would say hey do you want to read read to the kids tonight? And I'll confess I'm like well which, which child? Um, right now if I could read any of them I would pick Lily. Uh, because it would be two pages per, or two words per page, and I wouldn't have to think a whole lot, and I could memorize it, and I could remember Pizza Pat. They had the Pizza Pat book, and it was sloppy and goppy, and other, you know, and the cheese, and, and I could memorize that, and I could just read through it real quick. It was very simple, and I enjoy kind of simple reading, to be honest with you, except when it comes to the word. With the word, for some reason, that just resonates. I want to get dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And so when we look at this word mikvah and we look at all the different definitions, when we see Proverbs chapter 2 and he says, if you search for it as you would for treasure, then you will find the knowledge of God. It's not something that any of us are going to get. And Justin preached on this two or three weeks ago. I mean, it's not something you're going to get by just a first blush and a glance. It is a seeking and a searching as you would for treasure. So those were some of my studies that, you know, about the words of, of, of baptizo and baptistes and bapto and mikvah. And there's another baptism in the New Testament that's very important that we look at. It's, it, I think it's important. And what I'm hoping to do is this is creating fodder, and I'll give you my conclusion before I finish up the sermon, is that if you guys are interested, I'll be here at 9 o'clock next Sunday. I'm hoping I can get one of the brothers to preach next week. Uh, I'm going to have a pretty busy week. And all right, if anybody wants to preach next week, I'm hoping not to call you out, but is that a yes? Amen. Thank you, brother. Um, is that I'll be here at 9 o'clock on Sunday, and I'd love to just be able to sit down and, and have a conversation and talk about what about this, and what about this, and what about this, and just sharpen that iron together, guys. All of us. Men, women. Children, let's just sharpen iron in, that, in, that, in those back rooms in that study from 9 o'clock till 10 or whatever, and we can talk about this more in depth. But there's a baptism discussed in the New Testament that oftentimes gets overlooked by churches that would consider themselves baptismal regenerationalists, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you look in Acts chapter 1, you see this story of Jesus. It's one of the last times that Jesus was with his disciples, and it was after the, the, the crucifixion, it was after the resurrection, it was after he spent the, the, the 40 days uh, speaking about the kingdom of God. And it says in verse 4, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with the, the apostles, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So God promises, the Father promises, we're going to look at another passage here, Luke, in a minute, but towards the end of Jesus' ministry, before he ascends into heaven, God promises to give us the Holy Spirit. He promised that. And when we look at the benefits of the Holy Spirit, it's like, yes, please, I, I want it. I need it. I, I need it. And so he says, don't leave Jerusalem. He's talking to these apostles. They were fearing persecution. Jesus had resurrected. They were showing many convincing proofs that he was alive. He got the holes in the hand, the feet, you know, the side. And, and, but he's eating fish with them. He, he ate fish with them. They're like, wow, it's really you. You, you. you did resurrect from the dead. 
And he says, okay, that's great. I'm, I'm going to go be with my father now. I'm going to go sit up at the right hand of God. But don't leave Jerusalem yet. There's something I got to give you. I got to give you a gift that I promised you you would get. So don't leave yet. And he goes, and you know what? You're going to be my witnesses. You will. That is a directive command found in Acts chapter 1. He says, you will be. It's not like, I really want you to be. He's saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, here, Judea, here, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to guide you, to help you, to give you the right words that you need to speak when you need to speak them. And that was a promise that is, that is considered or called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What we have of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it happens in Acts chapter 2, it happens in Acts chapter 8, and it happens in Acts chapter 10. We can talk about that next Sunday at 9 if you'd like, but those are the three times that I've found in Scripture that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes down on people. And the other one I want to look at is in Luke chapter 24. It's another one of the, the great commissions, if you will, the final teachings of Jesus. And it says that it was right after the road to Emmaus and they were doubting and Jesus walking along and he goes, hey, what's going on? And he goes, you haven't heard? What are you, new to town? And, and then he says, you know, he opens their eyes so they can see and he tells them that they're foolish, that how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And then after they were talking to Jesus, Jesus himself showed himself to Peter and the other apostles and he says, peace be with you. They were startled. They gave him some food to eat. And then he says this in verse 45, chapter 24. He says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He, he opened, and that's a prayer that I think we all need to have when we're studying with one another, is Lord, open my mind, open his mind, open her mind, open the mind so that I can understand. Think about that. Is it possible that we have our minds closed because we don't want to understand the truth? I'm not making an accusation here. In general, is it possible we say, I don't want truth? Because truth will mean I have to think differently. Truth will mean I have to change my thought process. Truth may mean I have to change my actions. Truth may mean I have to think differently about what I believed in the past. I'm going to close my mind. And Jesus, in his love, said he opened their minds so they can comprehend and understand the Word of God, the Scriptures. And he says, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer. He will rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Don't leave! Don't leave Jerusalem! You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you. Look at what he says there. Jesus says, I, Jesus, am going to send you, the apostles, what my Father has promised. Jesus is sending the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The power of the Holy Spirit came down on those in Acts chapter 2 as they were sitting together and the tongues of fire came down. That's what he's referring to. Every commentator in the world believes that. I mean, there's not some, well, no, that's everybody knows that the power from on high they were clothed with was the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. 
So that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, I want you to notice, he says, I am going to send you. Who's going to send you? Jesus is going to send you the Holy Spirit. I don't have that power. You don't have that power. You don't have that power. It says, Jesus, I am going to send you what my Father promised, which was the Holy Spirit. It says, similarly in Acts chapter 1, I will clothe you from on high. So Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the creator of the universe, Colossians chapter 1, says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And so naturally, I have to go to, okay, what, it, what does that have to do with me? Is there anything that I do in the process? Is there anything that I do as a disciple of the Father, as a disciple of Jesus? And there's two passages that Jesus gave to the disciples that are recorded in Matthew and Mark. And the first one, we'll look at Mark chapter 16. In Mark 16, and we're almost finished up, guys. So in Mark 16, Jesus uh, said to them, starting in verse 15, Go, go, <laughs> go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. First off, what I love about this word, or these words, go into all the world, or go into all the world and preach the good news to whom? All creation. This is, what's, this is what is awesome to me. There is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't care if you're black, if you're brown, if you're redneck, doesn't matter. You are a child of God. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> These religious groups that segregate by pigmentation work for the dark side because they don't understand the basic tenets of Christianity. Mankind is created in the image of the Almighty God. All creation. Go and preach to all creation the good news. And these signs, oh, I'm sorry, verse 16. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then he talks about the signs that will accompany them. They'll speak in new tongues, pick up snakes with their hands, and drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They'll place their hands on sick people and they will get well. So he gives them this, go into the world, preach the good news. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We can talk about the drinking of the poison and the biting of the snake and the speaking in tongues in another study as well. I love to have those conversations in the Bible studies. People that avoid those, I'm like, do you really want to know what Scripture says or you just want to be comfortable? Because I kind of like to be uncomfortable. I like it when my, the elder of our church puts his hand on me and says, ah, I've always looked at that differently. And the way he did it was as a father putting his hand on his, his young son's shoulder and saying, when you rake, this is how you rake. When you sweep, this is how you sweep. When you drive, when you, I mean, it was, it was an educational, instructional, it's how I took it. Go deeper into this. Look deeper into this word. Look deeper into this study. It wasn't, look, I know best, and I know this is right, and you messed that up. That wasn't what it was. It says, I've looked at this different. And it was an encouragement to go into the Word and say, huh, maybe he was passing the baton. Okay. Does it matter if I'm right or wrong? 
No. What matters is if I get in the Word and say, God, what did John mean there? Help me with my understanding. So the next passage I want to look at, and the final one before we close, close up, is in Matthew 28. We've all read the We've all read this a hundred times. We've all seen it. Everybody says, this is the, this is the last words of Jesus. And I've, I've heard this, I don't know how many times. These are the last words of Jesus. And I go, I think the last words of Jesus are found in Acts chapter 1. Because it says, after he said, you will be clothed from on high, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It says that as he, he was lifted up at that point, and they're all standing there going, oh, Jesus is floating where, where's he going? And then two angels are like, hey, what are you doing standing there? You've been told what to go do. And so then Jesus elevates or levitates and he goes and sits at the right hand of God. But one of the last recordings we have, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is talking to the 11 disciples um, in Galilee and they went to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. They saw him and worshipped him. He says, all authority, and, and this is after obviously the the crucifixion and the resurrection. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then he gives this command. Because all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, here's the command I'm going to give you. Go. Okay? Act like, don't act like I'm Jesus. Imagine Jesus is saying these words to you, Kyle. Go. Make disciples baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. It is one of the most simplistic commands Jesus could give to his disciples. Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And for conversation for next Sunday, I, I have to tell you, I have, I look at this passage and I say, okay, back in Acts chapter 1 and back in Luke 24, God says that Jesus is going to baptize with us, with the Holy Spirit. Okay? That, that cannot be denied. It says, I am going to give you power from on high. That's coming from Jesus. But in this passage, and in Mark 16 it's inferred, but in Matthew 28 and then fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 9 and in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 16 and in Acts chapter 22 they fulfilled the command that Jesus gave them, which is to go make disciples and baptize them. That was what was commanded by Jesus Christ, was to go baptize people. Not just baptize people, teach them to obey everything. Not just teach them to obey everything, make disciples. I've had people say, well in Mark 16 it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. See, it doesn't say whoever is not baptized and doesn't believe will be condemned. And I go, well why would they be baptized if they don't believe? Why would they be baptized if they're not a disciple? If they're not being disciplined after who Jesus is, why would they say, okay, I don't believe in this Jesus. I don't want to follow him. But yeah, I'll get baptized. That sounds like fun. 
No, that's not. Being buried with Jesus, being fulfilling the command of immersion, of being buried with Christ, is saying, yes, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. That is, the, that is what is taught in the Great Commission. So that's what I believe, and, and, and that's what I believe the Bible is very clear about. Um, and the challenge that I have to anybody who says, well, no, I, yeah, no, I, no I, here's, what I, here's my challenge. My challenge is to ask a few questions and then search for it as you would for treasure. Because I think that's God-honoring. I don't like when someone says, I don't agree with you. Why not? I don't know. I just don't agree. Well, what don't you agree with? I don't know. I just don't agree with what you have to say. Well, that's fine that you don't agree, but educate yourself and say, why? Why don't you, why don't you agree? Why do you disagree? And so I'd ask myself, what happens, what happens at baptism? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, what happens there? What happens at the baptism of, in Matthew 28, the Christian baptism, Acts chapter 2, what happens there? Is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts chapter uh, 1 that's talked about, and we see it in Acts 2, and we see it in Acts 8 and Acts 10, um, is that something that I have control over? Is that something any human has control over? Or is that something God has control over? Is baptism in water something that I do have control over or is something that God solely has control over? These are all questions that I think are very important to ask as we say, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And look, I know this is a difficult, hot topic. I know it is. Because I think if we were to take a poll and if we had a question and everybody says, well, I believe this and this, we would have 40 different or 20 different or 10 different understandings of it. I don't doubt that for a second. I really don't. And I'm not going to say, well, I condemn you because you don't believe the way I believe, but I would ask you, don't condemn me for believing the way I believe. Because I will tell you, I'm very confident in I believe what I believe because of my understanding of the written word. I'm not saying my understanding is better than yours. I'm just saying it is based on the written word of God. And I know that can be a tough, that's a tough thing to hear, a tough thing to say, but um, to tease what to tease. Oh, man, I am tired. I'm just, I'm going to get a nap today, like every Sunday, for the most part. Is that you, Mom, ringing? <laughs> All, right. All right, I love you guys. What a good church body, good group of people. It's awesome that, uh, what is it? Again, is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We just need to keep studying the Word Keep getting in the Word and finding out, you know, why do I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? Is it because my granddaddy taught me? Or because my granddaddy taught my daddy who taught me? Is it because I had an experience that the people that were teaching me one way were such hypocritical people that what they say can't be correct? I mean, there's thousands of reasons why we believe what we believe, and my challenge is to be like Apollos, to be like the Bereans. Be like the Bereans. Be of noble character. Look and see, thoroughly, thoroughly examine the Scriptures. Thoroughly examine the Scriptures.
to see if what Paul said was true, to see if what the preacher said is true, to see what my Bible study partner said is true. Thoroughly examine the scriptures. Because without that, without the written word, I mean, it's to me then it's just relative truth. It's relative truth. Our feelings have got to be first and foremost juxtaposed with the word of God. Amen? Okay. Who has communion this, this morning? Ephraim? All right.